This is the Future of HR Podcast, Episode 6. I always think growth for any of us, it's really, it's difficult because it does require a unique combination. Enough humility to know you still have stuff to learn and enough confidence to believe that you can learn it. And I think that combination of I don't have it now, but I can do this is a differentiator. How is your reputation impacting your career? What are the right and wrong ways to network? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field and most importantly, your career to the next level. Today, my guest is Angela Lane, Vice President, Global Talent at AbbVie, a Fortune 100 company with over $56 billion in revenue and 50,000 employees across the globe. Angela is responsible for AbbVie's talent strategy and talent engine, which includes the philosophies and practices on talent management, learning development, succession planning, and more. She's also a co-author of Fair Talk, Three Steps to Powerful Feedback, Angela is a true thought leader in our field and an incredible human being. In our conversation today, Angela and I discuss what she learned pivoting from a generalist into a specialist role, her career edge model and how to leverage it for your success, how to manage your reputation to achieve your career goals, how to network when you're early in your career, and how to give feedback and so much more. Hi, Angela. Welcome to the Future of HR podcast. Thank How are you? you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I want to talk a little bit more about your early career. Think of those first 10 years or so, those pivotal career years where you learned so much. Tell us more about those experiences and what you learned from that. The first part of my career, it sounds <laughs> a long time ago. I got to look back into the archives. But one of the things that is true is that I didn't start my, my very early career. I didn't start in HR. And so for anyone that is listening to this that maybe hasn't been in the profession, maybe they're thinking of joining, it would be a great decision. But also there is so much that you learn in other roles, other places that you can bring to this this role. I started off in the public sector. So that was a big change. I was an economist by training. And so I was doing analyst work. And I think what I learned that has held me in great stead throughout all of my career is I learned how to analyze and use facts. And I think Mm -hmm. great foundation for any HR professional. I learned how to build phenomenal relationships with people that I worked with, with organizations we partnered with, with people we were providing services to. And I learned to be a really good facilitator, facilitate a meeting, facilitate a group, get people to consensus. And I look back and I didn't recognize at the time how important those things were going to be for the next 25 years. So (laughs) didn't start in HR, but eventually did make, make that change. And you know what? You start off as an HR manager or I don't know, something like that. How did you find the first job? What made you attracted to HR and made you decide to take that pivot? Oh, well, it's a, it's a, it's probably too long a story, but I was working for the government. I was working in areas that looked at industry productivity. And one of the things you kept bumping up against 
was, well, you know, if things were different in the company, if things were different in the plant, if things were different in the distribution center, things could be more productive. And somehow it never seemed to work like that. So it just seemed very natural to, well, I could talk about it theoretically. I could actually go and work in a plant or work <laughs> in a distribution center and try and uh, and make a difference. So I I did that. But I was in Australia at the time. I said, oh, perhaps it's obvious from the accent. <laughs> and one of the other things I would just encourage people thinking about that early part of their career, when you are in a smaller country, by definition, the firms are smaller, the teams are smaller. And so as an HR professional, you need to do a lot of things. You mm. need to know enough about compensation, enough about employee relations, enough about training and development that and what I want to say in the best sense, jack of all trades. And that would be another thing that I look back on and I'm so uh, happy about in terms of, you know, as you get more senior, as your jobs get more specialized, having that really strong foundation and that breadth of experience. And so I would say two things, again, to, to early career HR professionals, don't be put off by the thought of working in a smaller organization. We all want great brands on our resume. It's, you know, great to have, I don't know, Amazon or, I don't know, Facebook or Starbucks or something. Um, but don't discount how much you'll learn and grow working in a smaller organization. If you happen to work in a big organization, don't underestimate the importance of moving regularly enough to get all of those different experiences that somebody else can get sitting in one job working for a smaller company. That is great advice. And you're right. When you're in those smaller companies, you have to do more. And early in your career, you can really pull from that later on. But at the same time, if you are in a big company, more specialized, it's on. It's up to you to figure out how do I get more breadth and depth and not get pigeonholed because that's easy to do in a big company as well. Let's talk about Avon. When you kind of got to that VP role, you're the vice president for HR for Western Europe, Middle East, Africa, and APAC. And you transitioned to VP of Global Talent Management and Talent Acquisition. What was that transition like? Tell us more about why you made that decision and how it impacted your career. It's a great question because I had spent the previous, I don't know, 15 plus years as an HR generalist. And I was able to use that. And perhaps I should have talked about this under that banner of early in career, but I used that to make some amazing international moves. and. You know, I think folks that go for a career in HR, we really have the opportunity to to make those careers very global. So I was sitting in London at the time and my boss, a fantastic HR leader, great mentor to me, rings and says, look, I'd like you to come to New York and take this role as the head of talent. And I loved being in the business. I loved being close to the work I was in. Avon, as you say, I used to sell cosmetics on a weekend. Can you believe it? Really? Because I did it to learn the business when I first started. Uh, and two years later, I was still doing it. I loved it. Loved being, you know, out there selling product. Anyway, I thought, ah, oh, head office, it's going to be, you know, there's, it's not going to be close to the business. It's not going to feel the same, but it's a good career move. And it's a great hmm. chance to go to New York City, my goodness, for anyone from outside the US. That's just a dream. So the family, we do these things as a family. We can talk about that as later, perhaps in the context of careers. So we made the shift and I look back on it and three things were different, not better, not worse, just different. And for anyone thinking of those kind of career pivots, one is when I was in a generalist role, 
the business created my agenda. I would come in in the morning. I'd kind of think I know what my day is going to look like. <laughs> then your head of sales would uh, decide to resign. Um, there'd be an industrial <laughs> question, an ER issue over in, you know, purchasing. And uh, there'd be, you know, some, somebody didn't get paid or whatever. And, and your day had this very dynamic nature, full of variety and a lot of adrenaline, I have to say. I get to New York, I'm sitting in this gorgeous corner office. It had belonged, by the way, to Mark Efron, who I know has been a guest for you previously. <laughs> so I'm sitting in what used to be Mark's office thinking, why is my phone not ringing? Why are people not emailing me? And you realize that in some of those roles, it's your job to actually create the agenda. And what I grew to love about those specialist roles is that you actually do get to have more time to reflect and to think strategy, to think long-term strategy, and to really carve out the course, the future course. You do have to be a subject matter expert. I wasn't. And I had to be very open to learning, learning from people like you, learning from uh, books. I had great mentors, built a network. I didn't have a network in New York. I was very intentional about who are the smartest people yeah. in this space. And, you know, I would encourage anyone People are so kind. I could ring somebody, email someone and say, look, I have had your name from someone else. And they said that you were phenomenal in this space. Could I buy you a coffee? And people are just wonderfully generous if you're very respectful of their time and you know all of that good stuff. So I reached out and I became a subject matter expert. And I think the other thing I had to learn was, you know, just influencing at enterprise level is a different it's a different game. You're dealing with different seniority of leaders. And so you have to get very, very good, very crisp at the business case for the strategies you're outlying. And so I built a whole lot of new skills. I was not young in my career and you're still able to grow and change and get even better. Wow. I think you really helped describe why that was such a pivotal role for you. Just succinctly broke down how you thought about that change and talk a little bit more about how it has impacted your career. And also, as you made that change, because you really had to learn, you weren't a talent management expert, right? Did you feel a bit like an imposter syndrome or, gosh, you know, I'm not ready for this? A lot of people feel that when they take on these new roles, which is really well, natural. But how did I you feel? Felt like, I felt like the worst imposter in the world. And for a whole lot of reasons, you know, just even arriving in New York City, I felt, I felt like an imposter <laughs> as I walked down the street. You know, I, I came from a city which I think when I left it had three million people. <laughs> Um, and, uh, so there were, that was, I'm sure, uh, part of it, but I followed in the steps of somebody who was a published author, a name in, in, in the industry. I, you know, I, there was a whole lot of reasons why, you know, you might've felt that you didn't have everything that it takes. I certainly hadn't been exposed to the most senior leaders in the business. I was exposed to the guy that had run my part of the business, but not really to his peers. And I always felt that I was just not quite, you know, not quite where I needed to be. I, the conversations I had didn't feel like they were the right conversations. The arguments I'd make didn't feel like they quite landed as well as they, they should. And the reality is they probably didn't. For the first mm. few years, they probably didn't. And people were gracious. You have people that allow for a learning curve, but we're also probably better 
than we think. So sometimes it's just a matter of pushing through. Yeah, I was going to say, I think you were probably a lot better than you maybe thought you were at that moment because we all have self-doubt when we take on these big roles. If you don't have any self-doubt, if you're not a little bit afraid or uncertain, then you're not taking enough risk in your career to begin with. And that's what growth is all about. Fully agree. And the thing I would build on that is to say, in fact, without that humility, you don't have the basis on which to learn. I always think growth for any of us, it's really, it's difficult because it does require a unique combination. Enough humility to know you still have stuff to learn and enough confidence to believe that you can learn it. And I think that combination of I don't have it now, but I can do this is a differentiator. Absolutely. Well, you have become a thought leader, Angela, and we are very happy for that. And one of the things that you have been doing over, gosh, I don't know how long, and you've been now, I think, head of talent at AbbVie for you know, nine years, 10 years, almost 10 years. Wow. And you've got a great writing partner, Sergey Gorbatov, who you've written Fair Talk with and also have an amazing website called The Edge You Need. And one thing I have found, I've always been inspired by your writings and think, gosh, Angela's got to write. We've known each other for a while as well. But I loved your career model, your career success model called Career Edge. And I think a lot of people really could learn from it. It needs more exposure. So I'd love for you to talk to us more about the Career Edge and what that model is all about. I'd, I'd love to do that. And I think this is really important for HR people for our own careers. But we are often advising people about their careers. And we ought to know this stuff cold so we can be the best thought partners to somebody else. And how the model came about, how the research came about was a frustration, to be honest, about the lack of real information available to people about what it takes to have a successful career. And you've been in HR for a long time. I've been in HR for a long time. We know that it's actually complicated. You know, it's if it was one thing, we'd all be senior vice presidents. We'd all be CEOs. And it's not one thing. And people will profit from books on the shelf that tell you things like be your authentic self or play to your strengths or be so good they can't ignore you. And none of those things are wrong, but of themselves, they're not enough. It is a combination of things. And anyway, long story short, we decided that we would, through research, try and unpack the career model that was mm -hmm. comprehensive enough to be valid while being straightforward enough that any of us could take away one, two, or three things we could do differently. I love so, that. Yeah. So long story short, what is what does the model look like? It recognizes two things about careers that are really important. The first is that careers are in part a function of us, what we bring, our experiences, our skills, our personalities, our values, our, our preferences, but also the environment we interact with, the people we know, the boss we have. Uh, all of those kind of things. So it has this internal, external element, but it also takes place over time. There's what I do today and there's what I want to do tomorrow. And when you bring those things together, you can start to create a more comprehensive view of what it takes. So I put together what is me and I think about my career over time. That's do I have a vision? Do I have a vision and a plan for what I, I want to achieve? If I think about, again, what I'm doing, my contribution, and I think about it over time, what about the future? Well, I have to do good work today 
to build great relationships today, but I have to pivot those into ways of taking me forward in the future. If I think about the future, who do I need to know that can change and influence how I succeed in the future? I think about the future. What options am I open to? The more options I'm open to, the more chance I have of creating the future that I need and so on and so on. I'll give you a link. You can include it. People can look it look it up. But it basically leads to 10 behaviors, 10 behaviors mm. that, that if any of us had them, if any of us adopted them, we would have an edge because our research confirms that most people don't have all 10 behaviors. Behaviors people are most likely not to have is they do. People know intuitively they need to network but they do not know what they need to be known for. Mm. So reputation versus who I know. The other thing we know that people are not as strong at as they are at other things is thinking about opportunities and which opportunities create success and those successes breed future successes. Let's talk about the reputation piece versus network. When Ooh. you talk about reputation, we're living in an age where we all have social media profiles we're all building brands. We're best living our best lives on LinkedIn or Facebook or probably now really more TikTok and Instagram. What does that reputation mean for somebody early in their career? Perfect. I think how I would I would explain that is you need it's, it has a duality. You do need to be known. So there is that element of who am I connecting with and how good are the quality of those connections? And in our writing, one of the things we talk about is being what we call a positive networker, not somebody who creates one-sided, selfish relationships, but that genuinely creates connection. And we could talk more about that. But this idea about what do what does that network know about me? We are often reluctant to talk about our work, to talk about what it is that we actually delivered. And so we may be known. But we may not be known for the things that we want to uh, build our reputation on because those things take us where we want to go. So if I can just make a, a simple example, you know, if I want to be known, if I want a, a role ultimately that's, you know, head of a very strategic part of HR, then being known for 10 other things not helpful. Like I might even have them in my brand. They may even show up on my LinkedIn. But how do I get people to know the thing about me that is important to what will make successful in my terms? And our, we have a diagnostic tool where people can do a survey, short survey, and it rates how people are on various aspects. And people think, you know, I know lots of people. And then you'll ask, well, what do they know about you? And people go, oh, they know my job title. Maybe they know the company, but they may not know what I achieve and deliver, how I add value that they could use. Yeah. And I think what's interesting that you're bringing up, and, and tell me if this is a good idea, if you would suggest that someone does this early in their career, because I think it would take, you have to be pretty brave to do this, but to go in your company and talk to five or six HR business leaders whoever stakeholders you work with and sit down and just say, can you tell me what you think I'm known for? What's my reputation? And if they say to you, you're really good at doing Excel, but that's not what you want to be known for. You've got work to do. 
Is that um, something you would suggest? or I love that. I haven't suggested it. I'm going to take it away as a suggestion. I'm going to, I'll probably write it up and claim it was mine. That's how good <laughs> it is. I've written a lot of in, in other forums about the importance of getting feedback and the importance of asking for it as probably the best way of actually making sure you get something that's useful. And this would be a brilliant example of that. Tell me what I'm known for. And People might tell you stuff that you go, that's phenomenal. You might get an insight. I didn't know I was good at that. That could be really helpful. Or you may, you know, perhaps have some things confirmed. Okay, I, I want to be known as strategic, but I'm, I'm most associated with great execution. And how would I change that? What job would I need perhaps to take as a next rotation in order to change that? What leader could I work for? who's really good at that, so I could learn from them. It's that sort of thinking that really gives people a career edge. Yeah, that is great, great advice. And let's go back a little bit. You talked about the 10 behaviors and a few that people aren't very good at. What else do you see, maybe even on the HR space, in early career, what I call next generation HR leaders, mistakes they might be making or behaviors that they're not exhibiting that are leading to not having that career edge? So it's a great question. The two areas that show up, regardless of professional background, people often have a, an aspiration. They don't have a plan. You know, okay, I know I would have been the head of HR, going to be a CHRO, got a plan for that, no plan for that. So lack of, lack of a plan, lack of a pathway. We've already talked about this, you know, reputational piece. The other thing I would say is what am I open to do? So how do I multiply my opportunities? And people don't tend to take an analytical approach to that. I can't tell you the number of people I talk to, including HR people, and you would think we would be super good at this, right? And they'll say, oh, Ange, could I talk to you about my career? And it's not going the way I want. And say, well, okay, what sort of things are you looking at? And they haven't opened the job board. They haven't opened LinkedIn. They don't have their resume with three headhunters. They haven't thought about whether they're willing to change companies. They haven't thought about whether they're willing to move towns, something you and I have both done in, in our careers. They haven't thought about what could they do to multiply their opportunities. You know, could I take a project? If I have to stay in this job, if I have to stay in this company, if I have to stay in this town, could I take a project? Would that multiply my opportunities in the service of taking me to the next step in this career path that I'm able to articulate. And multiplying opportunities is a great concept. And I think when I've talked with people who've had terrific careers and the careers that they have really built for themselves, it's because they had that vision and they had a plan. The plan doesn't always stick. Careers are nonlinear. Things happen. But as you know the North Star, you continue to work your way there. But not taking action is failing to not actually get where you want to go. So you've got to make those steps early in your career. I love the networking piece too. You talked about smart networking. And let's talk about what being a positive networker is because I find in my experience, I'm like, I totally agree with you. If someone reached out and wants 10 minutes, I'm likely going to give them that 10 minutes, especially if they have a vision of where they want to go. But if we get in that conversation and I say, well, where are you trying to go? What's your goal? And you don't know, it's really hard for me to help you. But talk about how you build positive relationships, what a positive networking looks like, especially for someone who doesn't have the status. They're earlier in their career. How do you do that without and, looking and, like you're taking? 
Yeah. And let me build on, on the example you gave. Not only in that example, could you not help someone? They don't, they haven't given you enough direction to be helpful, but what a disrespectful use of their time. I am able to sit with the CHRO. He's giving me 10 minutes and I haven't thought enough to prepare myself to anticipate what he might ask or she might ask. I mean, that's the sort of thing that is not a positive networker. So a positive networker is somebody who is frequent in their communications. And what I mean by that is we have all met the guy who puts thing, themselves in, in into the calendar once every 18 months because they're now ready for their next job change. We all know that person, right? Don't be yeah. that guy. Do not be that guy. Bring something to others. Uh, so don't just come to take something away. If JP, if I know that you are super interested in podcasting and I saw something on that, why wouldn't I send you as part of that communication? Hey, I saw this article you might be interested in. It shows a respect for a reciprocal relationship. I can bring you information. That's an example. Another thing I can bring you is other connections. I might not know anything about podcasting, but I do know that my colleague Sergey is really good at it. So I could introduce you guys because you probably have a lot in common. It's actually contributing to the relationship. Mentioned before, being super respectful of people's time is an important characteristic. One of the characteristics we talk about is not freeloading, you know, and whether that's with time or, or information, but it's also financial. Tested a little bit in COVID because we were all mm -hmm. virtual, but the number of people that will, you know, you'll take them for a coffee. They ask, can they have some time? I'll take them for a coffee. And you always buy the coffee. It's just little things like that. I think there's an element of being prepared to be vulnerable and tell people a little bit about yourself, what you're looking for, learn enough about them outside their professional work to be able to connect. We're more alike as people. We're more alike than we're different. So they, we probably have things in common. Our kids, I know after this, your kids are playing sport. My kids play sport. <laughs> no, it's part of the connection. So yeah, definitely there are attributes to a positive networker and we've written on that. I'll send you a link, but that's super important. Yeah, reciprocal. I think, yeah, I think there's a lot to learn and, you know, there's a lot of stereotypes about Gen Z, millennials, networking behind a text message, email, or a slide into someone's DMs on LinkedIn. And that's probably fine because we can do that, but do that respectfully. Do your homework. Come with a re respectful request of what you're looking for to help us understand what that might look like, you know, if you don't know somebody. If you're in a work environment, you've got a reputation, so don't burn that bridge as well, right? Realize that's an opportunity to build your reputation when you're asking for that help. And if you go about that the wrong way, it's actually going to damage your reputation. Right? I think that's great guidance. Let's talk more about Fair Talk. Okay. The terrific book that you and Sergey put out all around feedback, which if you are in HR, you need to understand how to give feedback, how to receive it, how to coach to give feedback. It is so important to learning as we've already talked about. So in that book, you lay out the research that good feedback leads to greater performance. If this is the case, why don't managers, Angela, provide more feedback? Why don't people do more feedback? Oh, oh you're, you are so right. And you know what? It is, it's the human condition on both sides. 
On the side of the giver is the human condition that we all of us prefer to build relationships, to maintain relationships, to avoid conflict. Some of us more, some of us less, but we are social creatures. And, you know, if we, if we can do less of that risky social stuff, we will. So from the feedback giver, it was always going to be a challenge. What's the problem on the other side? The feedback receiver or potential receiver, our self-awareness as people about what we do well and what we do less well is really bad. There is a mile of research. We lay it out in the book, but we're really not good at knowing ourselves. And in the absence of being able to break that cycle, I'm really bad at knowing what I'm like. You're really bad at telling me what I'm like. If you can't break that cycle, you cannot improve performance. We developed a really, like just a very simple approach, three-step sentence approach to giving somebody some feedback. There are many other approaches. There's not one that is superior than the other. I think the big thing is, does it happen? Mm-hmm. And even if it happened, and it, even if it happened badly, that's way better than it not happening at all. Absolutely. This is why performance management, mid-year check-ins, regular conversations, <laughs> giving feedback is so important and why HR focuses on it so much. It, maybe help us understand in your mind, walk us through the model. What does great feedback look like? Sure. And just on the comment you made about HR, we often get so caught up in the execution of those processes. I am running the mid-year process, so I've got to complete that. I then move into year-end. It's got to be done to a time frame because it's going to feed into merit. or so. And we forget the why of that process is built because of the deep science around the importance of ensuring feedback, et cetera. So make sure we're always talking to our leaders about the why. Yeah, the important thing is the conversation not always the forms and templates. 100%, we spoke as way too much on redesigning the template every year versus saying, how do we have a great conversation? Yeah, and then hold people accountable for the content or delivering on the content of that, that conversation. But as it relates to the model, three super simple steps. The first is that we know that people inherently are motivated by something that is important. You know, tell me that something matters. And even if I don't think it matters as much as you do, with that background, I will behave differently. Just tell me I'm rubbish at something. If you as a leader or HR professional can't tell somebody why something matters, maybe it shouldn't be the subject of feedback anyway, quite frankly. It should have that important purpose, why this is important. We all feel great when what we do matters. So what is the why? that makes this particular piece of feedback important. Then you have to give them the feedback. You actually have to say how they are doing today against what you would have expected. Now, that could be over the course of a year. It could be in the last meeting you just attended. But how does someone go relative to expectations? And there's no way you can sugarcoat that. You know, It can be, you know what? How you show up at meetings is really important. So it was disappointing to see that you didn't stand to present, and that you didn't address your audience. It has to be against this benchmark of what we would have wanted to see, what good looks like. That can leave you in a difficult place if you don't take the third step. 
And the third step is to help somebody course correct. We don't take the view, the research doesn't suggest that you can't tell someone what they need to do differently. You can be actually really practical. You don't have to ask them how they might do it. People love to be given ideas and suggestions and love to feel supported and helped in the process. So why does it matter? How did they go? And what they could do differently. Really easy. Really easy and simple to execute. Hard to actually get everyone to perform and do it, but that takes the rigor and really the leadership of HR and people leaders to focus on that. But that is a terrific model. All right, last question for you, Angela. What is the one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? A step change in our professionalism. That's a phrase. It's a long one. I had to think about it. Mm -hmm. What do I mean by that? Historically, HR hasn't had the same reputation as a discipline, as a profession. We even talk about HR practitioners, not HR professionals. We talk about our work, our career, our calling, I would say, very differently than some other professions do. If the last three years has taught us anything, it has taught us that HR and the importance of it determines how businesses navigate the environment they're in. We have been central to business strategy, not just HR strategy. We will change, we are changing how the profession is viewed. And that means as part of that positive change, we have to step up to that. We have to lean into that. I think we will see just a growing expectation of what HR delivers, the quality of HR professionals, the rigor of our backgrounds, the rigor of the science that we bring. And I think it's going to be phenomenal. I agree with you. Practitioners to professionals. Angela Lane, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation. I appreciate it too. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Angela Lane for sharing her career journey and her perspective on how to achieve your career edge. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with Humaira Malik Shahid, Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer and Talent Development at Intuit. In our conversation, Humaira and I will discuss why you should follow your passion and not be afraid to take risks, how to land your dream job in tech, why you should evaluate your personal and professional goals every year, and her advice for aspiring Chief Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Officers. Thanks again for listening to the Future of HR and being part of our community.